Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Hello, everyone. Welcome. I hope that you're doing well. I want to thank our worshiping tech team again because that was what a wonderful way for us to start off our service. If you're online watching us, you're in person, if you've been with us for the first time or several months, or maybe you've called Sunridge home for years. We are just so, so glad that you're with us. Welcome. My name is Jed, and it's an absolute privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning, we are continuing in our series entitled Counter Cultural, where we are studying through the letter of First Peter. And the way that we have approached this text is we are looking at the parallels for these early Christians, these followers of the way, as they were in a society that looked very differently from what they were attempting to cultivate as people. And so even though we might say that today in our day and age here where we live, we are in a largely post-Christian culture, what's interesting, of course, is that for these believers, it was a pre-Christian culture in many ways. The point is, the similarity is that we can feel like we are living on the fringe, dissimilar, outside of what's ordinary or the majority. And as you heard CJ read this morning, there are a lot of verses for us to cover. And so I'm going to recap very quickly where we were last week. If you have not listened to any of our messages, I'd encourage you to go back in our archives and see where Britt has taken us thus far. It's been a great series. I have loved it. I'm thrilled and I'm glad that I get to be a part of it at this point in time. And if you do not have a note sheet, this might be one of those weeks where you're actually going to be able to follow along with me because I have it in my Bible. I'm going to take it out. I'm just going to walk through that with you because of how much we have there. So here is our recap. And again, I've got my note sheet right here. Last week, Britt taught a message entitled, Being Holy in a Culture of Moral Relativism. And the way that Britt described being holy is really, really important because when we see Peter reflecting on God's words to be holy as I am holy, we see that there's a different way that we can describe that word that is set apart from how you and I might be accustomed to hearing that word holy. Because when we say holy, we might hear rigidness or legalism, being self-righteous. The way that it was presented to us is more accurate to the whole of Scripture and the way that these early Christians would have understood it to be set apart for God's purposes. And that's your fill-in-the-blank right there, His mission. To be holy is to be chosen by God for the sake of, to accomplish something, not so that you can say, I am holy. We see this mission being given to the very first disciples at the conclusion of our Gospels. We can look at the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, and verse 19 of Matthew 28, where we have the Great Commission, we see Jesus say, therefore go and make disciples of all 
nations, to make disciples. That word disciple, lifelong learner. And they would do this into all nations. Now, what's important there, and the reason why I have that as a fill in the blank, is because a mission to be holy and to go into all nations, even though that doesn't sound very counterintuitive to us, that would be oxymoronic. You guys know what an oxymoron is, right? When we have a word or a set of words that seem contradictory in nature. So when we say bitter, sweet, right? Or civil, war. Or I had only that choice. So we know that when we hear these words, we can make sense of them somehow. But again, for these disciples, for Jesus to be saying, go and make disciples of all nations, it would have seemed like an oxymoron because of the fact that this group that he was speaking to, these young men and women, they were Jewish. To be holy for them for so much of their life and the way it was presented was to actually be set apart from the nations, from the people around them so that they would not become unholy. And so here's the obstacle to this mission. The obstacle to this mission is people, those people. You know, here on church at Staff Behind the Scenes, you can probably imagine that you never give us any headaches. You guys are perfect. You're wonderful people. You never complain about anything. You're just so encouraging and supportive. And I say that with all of the love possible. And one of the things that we can say here behind the scenes without gossiping or saying mean things, when something disheartening or discouraging comes up, maybe you'll often hear us on staff just say, oh, people. It's just people. And that's probably a better way than us going about and saying terrible things about you. Because again, we don't want that to be the case. And we love you so, so much. You're so uncomfortable right now. People. What happens when the mission of God and what he sends us to do is obstructed by people? Those people. The people who your whole life you were not supposed to be associating with. And so the title of this message is being a people in a culture of us versus them. Every single week, we've taken an idea of what it's like to live in our present day, parallel it to the scriptures, and try and figure out how we can be Christ followers, how we can be obedient to the call of God in our life, in our world, when we're confronted with so much. So what does it mean to be a people in a culture of us versus them. Now, if you read Britt's email this past week with that great header, you've been erased, you probably got this sense of what you and I can feel today, which is in a day and age, we're having a different opinion or a different stance has been almost vilified. You and I can become incredibly uncomfortable at the sight of or the thought of or the hearing of something that is different than us, right? You know what that's like. And we can feel threatened by these things so much so that it might provoke in us a posture. It looks like this picture I'm going to show you from my time in college. This is a, it's a little bit dark there. That's 19-year-old Jed. I had just had an ulcer about I don't know, five or so months ago, I'd lost a bunch of weight, but here I was, I still could throw a ferocious dodgeball. 
And this was my sophomore year. And we were in the championship game. And by that point in time, there were two guys left on the other side, and it was just me. Actually, there were three. And so this picture is taken as I'm coming up to the middle, and I hurl it back, and I knock out one of the guys. And so the crowd goes wild. There are two people left, and it's just me. And then I decide to do something, and I'll show you. And camera, you don't have to follow. You can keep that picture up on the screen. But with two people on the other side, I decided that I was going to take this posture. And all of the cocky 19-year-old Jed said, give me some of that. And so I sat there on the other side of the court, and I just started doing this. Two guys had dodgeballs on the other end. And I invited it. And they stepped to the line, they threw, one guy missed. I caught the second one, so now it was 1v1, but you bring back a teammate. My friend Ian ran in, I passed Ian the dodgeball. He ran toward the halfway juncture, jumped across, like that scene in Troy with Brad Pitt. (laughs) Seriously, this is a real story. Tosses it, nails the guy, and then you have this scene at the end where we are just erupting and we win. There's one more picture there. Oh, yeah. Danny can vouch for this story. He would have been there. It's a real story. I'm not one of those pastors that has stories to tell you every time I teach because quite frankly, my life isn't that interesting. I think pastors make up stories all the time and I don't have enough fun stories, but that's one story. And when we think about us versus them, there are situations and settings in our life where it's really, really appropriate. And quite frankly, we're on a dodgeball court or for those of us that played sports like I did growing up, that sentiment of having your people and your team and it being us against the world is really, really important. And it's fun. Oh man, it is so, so fun to knock people out. It feels good. I'm telling you, like there is a great deal of joy that can come when you accomplish something like that and you've defeated and conquered and sent those people away into oblivion forever. (laughs) That's a really dramatic way of presenting that idea, but what happens when that creeps in a little bit to how we actually see other people? What happens when our side conversations or the things that we post online or the things that we text one another or the thoughts that we have in our head essentially look like us gearing up in that dodgeball perfect form, trying to take that other person out. Or maybe it's not even we're going to go and approach them in that way, but we just get this senseness, that primal sense that something's wrong and I'm at threat and I need to respond in a particular way. Now, many of you noticed that something was a little bit weird today. Uh, I don't dress like this ever. (laughs) You're finally like, thank God, Jed acknowledged what's going on. I was so worried about putting on this outfit because if you're a guest with us today, I really thought we could really freak you out and you could think we're this stuffy, uptight church. And if you're watching online, you haven't joined us, I promise we don't dress like this all the time. But I wanted to make a point and the fact that there was a response, an audible response, when I finally acknowledged that I look a little bit different is a fact we have visual triggers. And we see something or someone that is different, we immediately start to wonder, like, well, what happened to Jed? Right? 
I mean, hopefully you thought like good things about me, like maybe I'd be doing something which I do pretty often, like going to do a wedding or a memorial after this, but that was probably one of your first thoughts is, what the heck is up with that guy? You know what's interesting is that the more we delve into the psychology of why we would categorize or distinguish between us and other people, it actually becomes less about the other person and more about us. Because if you thought about it a little bit more, and you weren't familiar with me, Jed, as a person, for those of you who do know me, if I were just a person coming up on stage, or if this were the first time that you were visiting Sunridge Community Church, you actually wouldn't ask, why is that guy in a suit? The environment would be assumed into how you started thinking about why I'm in a suit. You would actually start asking yourself if you were supposed to dress up. A little bit more. You'd start to wonder whether or not you fit in to this place. You'd start to question whether or not you should be here or if you belong. Do you see how if any of you knew me, Jed, as a person, which I know many of you, you probably thought it was weird that I was wearing a suit, but I don't think you felt necessarily threatened by me. I mean, Patricia James walked up to give me that pre-service hug and was like, what the heck? What the heck? Again, it's less about me and actually more about you. That is the context of the entirety of the second half of your Bible. I mean, that is it. You see, in the New Testament, the reason why in all of our letters there's so much admonition and exhortation and calling out of loving one another and being a community and all these things is because these people were called into something that they thought they shouldn't have been called into. This hodgepodge, this group of mix-ups and people who they were supposed to be separate from. And when Peter writes to these individuals in Asia Minor, the majority of them were Gentiles who became Christians. In other words, they were people on the outside who, by the grace of God, miraculously, mysteriously, were somehow invited in. And so much of the disruption in these churches and these local communities is trying to figure out what do we do with Jews and Gentiles? Men and women, slave and free, parents and kids, all in this gathering spot where we are wanting to respond to this absurd idea, but reality and truth that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That is what the church always was and continues to be, even though today we can walk into this space and kind of just assume that we're all here for the same reason, it's easy peasy, and we all think the same thing. So you might not feel threatened in this space, but remember that throughout the text, and as Peter is writing to these individuals, so much of the threat isn't just external. Briz talked about how there's an eroding from within, and we are confronted with that from the very beginning. So I put this challenge to you. If, if you haven't read through the book of Acts, ever, or if you haven't done it in a long time, I'd encourage you to read that closely. Take some time, maybe over the next month, and just start reading through Acts, because you will see that the church transitions from just being this more homogenous entity of Jews who are together that starts breaking into the world, into those 
people. We start seeing that transition in chapter 10. And if you want to see the intensity of Jews and Gentiles, of us versus them, start reading Acts chapter 21. It is wild what the Apostle Paul is faced with. So that's a lot of background. You guys ready to go into all these verses? There's a ton. So if you have your note sheet, you can follow along. We did this a little bit differently this week. If you are following along on this note sheet, if anything is bolded, it's the actual text. If there are things in parentheses that are italicized, those just might be some ideas to call back or to remember. Anything that's uppercased is still a fill in the blank for you. And then I'm just going to talk us through this text. Are you guys good with that? Is it okay? You guys fair with that? All right. Here we go. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. Now let's look at that first parenthesis. Remember chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. This is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These people are only together because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. They've been given something new. It's, It's hopeful. It's wild. It is exciting that they have been welcomed in because of Jesus, the Christ, and his resurrection. So the obedience to the truth isn't I have all my affairs in order. Now my life is perfect. No, obedience to the truth contextually here is believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, Christ, chosen one, Messiah, and that he has been raised from the dead. You've heard that, right? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you will be saved. That's the obedience piece. It's having Christ foremost. So he says then, You have genuine mutual love. What does he say? To what? To what? What does he say to do to one another? To love one another. Again, there's a lot of talk about love here. To love one another deeply. And I love the root word for this word that we have deeply here because it's not just this fervent or I'm excited to love you. The word picture that we get here for deeply is actually this reaching out, this this moving toward. So here's the key in this text, this piece. We never outgrow the command to love one another. We never outgrow it. And I know a lot of times we hear sermons about loving one another or love, and we think, oh, I've heard that sermon before. But do you live that sermon? I know that that's a sermon that I'm going to be having to work through for the entirety of my life. I remember just not too long ago, I was hanging out with T. Hunt. He's sitting up here in the front. He's one of our elders, and he came by, and and T. Hunt and I were talking about some of the stuff that he'd been learning recently, and he just said, Jed, I I mean, it's just, it's wild. It's just loving one another, loving one another, and that's coming from a person who, in the eight years that I've known him, all I've seen is T. Hunt loving. I can think about T. Hunt at camp at one of our winter retreats, where he's like grabbing brooms. This was before he was an elder, and he's just grabbing brooms and sweeping and serving. And he didn't think that seven or six years later to be talking about in a sermon, because that's kind of uncomfortable. But I am, and I decided to do that in the moment to hear it. 
I mean, what an act of love and service for things that don't seem like they matter. You and I will never outgrow that command. And here's how we know. We can continue in the text. It says this, you have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. See that born anew language, right? We can remember Jesus speaking to Nicodemus and Nicodemus being confounded that we would have to be born again. We've talked about this before, that to be born again means that we have the opportunity to learn again, mature again, be invited in this family of faith where we can, despite our own upbringings and our hurts and our history, see living hope. And enduring, we put in parentheses these words, if you haven't written them down, staying, abiding, remaining. Right? When we hear the word enduring, we can think about perseverance and just making it to the end. But the critical thought here is that there's this remaining. And the word of God remains. So here's the key. Here's your next fill in the blank. You and I are only here because God didn't give up. Now, I know it's really interesting to hear because so often in the church, we are good about sharing those passages of Scripture, like Deuteronomy 31, 6, or 9, and that section where it says, I will never leave you or forsake you, right? Or we have Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, or the Great Commission saying, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. And so we're familiar with this idea that God would choose to stay. And so we would just respond to him. But if you read the text closely, particularly when the prophets are speaking out against the nation of Israel or Judah, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, we see over and over them actually sharing expressions of God that would seem to indicate he's fed up and he's had enough. And he's going to turn his back and he's done. And so I know that a lot of us have heard this before, but can we rest briefly with the fact that all of this is response to God? You know, your whole life is a response, right? We might think that we're initiators and we decided on our own, but I mean, you just were birthed somewhere. You showed up on the scene. Other people had to take care of of you. You didn't design your body or this world or this system. I mean, for those of us that love to initiate and we call ourselves self-starters, okay, I mean, I'm pretty sure you and I didn't design it so that we could rest in the night and wake up in the morning, even though we don't remember what happened. I mean, the whole thing is crazy. It's crazy. The whole thing is a response. What would happen if the Word of God weren't just us referring to a book, the Bible. But we saw that it was God's heart to not give up on us. And so Peter continues and says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I put in parentheses where that was quoted from, which was Isaiah. The word is the good news that was announced to you. There's your fill in the blank. Okay, we pushed you a little bit. You've listened for a long time, so I'm going to give you a little quick mental break here. 
We've done some stuff in the past few weeks where we've had you engage very, very briefly with the people around you. I know that a lot of you endured a lot. You remained after this summer of, of talking in groups if you were here for that. So we're going to do this very quickly. I want you to take a few moments and think about your favorite restaurant in the world. Like the best place. Like, I hope it's not a, well, I, I guess it could be a chain, but <laughs> think about the best restaurant in the world, okay? Maybe 10 seconds. I'm going to count in my head. Okay, I gave you 10 seconds. Now, like Britt had us do that, we're going to turn around. Turn around to someone that you know or don't know. And on the count of three, I just want you to say out your favorite restaurant in the whole wide world. You ready? Three, two, one, go. All right. All right. All right, come back to me now. Oh, come on. These are the longest restaurant tires in the whole wide world. Cooks. Wayne Soup. Come on, I'm putting you on the spot. Favorite restaurant? Two different ones. The Pancake House. Oh. Sue, what about you? Seafaring. Pancake House and Seafaring. Those are... I almost said great spots, but I've only been to one of them. <laughs> great spots. You know what's really interesting? Do you guys remember the first time that you went to that restaurant? So what's, what's funny now today is we have, we have Yelp and all these ways that we can get to restaurants. We, we make decisions based off of other people's stars, which is crazy. That's so crazy, stars. <laughs> stars and a little bit of text. No, nah, I'm not going to that place. Oh my goodness. But when you stumble upon a restaurant for the first time and you really, really like it, you're probably going to want to go back, right? I know what it's like to go on these restaurant kicks or food kicks. You have something so good and the next lunch break, it's like, let's get that again. Or the next time you have a date, it's like, let's go to Seafarers again. Or let's go to Pancake House again. Whatever it is. But what's interesting, do you guys know what it's like to take someone to your favorite restaurant? Like someone who's never been there before? right? And you're all nervous, like hoping that they like it. It's going to say something about you or the stars on Yelp if they don't like it. So then you take them to this restaurant, and by the grace and mercy of God giving us gifts of food, they're quickened in their being, and they agree with you. This is the greatest food ever, they think. They're converted. It's wonderful. It's awesome. You guys know what it's like, though, when next you know you're like hanging out around them, and they start talking about your restaurant like it's their restaurant? Like they were there first? Like they invited you there? It's like, bro, I, I took you to Pancake House. Like that was my deal, not yours. Guys, you're laughing because you know what that's like. You don't even have to confess, you're confessing with your laughter. Now, if we're like that with restaurants and food, 
you guys seeing like this mental break was actually proving a deeper point, like a heart issue with us? We tend to struggle for whatever reason when the stuff that at one point was foreign to us was outside to us. We get brought into it and it's like, now it's my restaurant. Now it's my faith. Now it's my way of living. So here's the key. Remember what it was like to be on the outside. Never forget when you were. And this isn't just for matters of faith. This is life. You know, when I was our high school pastor several years ago, the only way that I could make sense of adolescent nonsensicalness is to think, oh yeah, I was a teenager. My nonsense made sense. It doesn't make sense. Right? And so when we're like, man, why would that teenager do that? Well, when you were a teenager, when I was a teenager, we did that too. And we can think at every juncture and stage of our life when stuff doesn't make sense that someone else is doing, it's like, no, 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 I, if I stop to think about it for a little bit, I do that stuff as well. So don't forget what it was like when you were on the outside. And this is the reminder for this Christian community. Don't forget what it was like. That's why it makes sense for Peter to keep writing. Then rid yourselves, therefore. Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and guile and sincerity, envy, and all slander. See how this works with restaurants, too? It's the same. <laughs> like newborn infants, again, in that grown-up language, long for pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The growing of salvation part was the emphasis here. You can write that down. And what I love about Peter's writing, and he really understands this. We look at his story. Peter understands that salvation, which is more technically, literally deliverance, is not just a past act. It's past, present, and future. And that's, that's your key. Salvation is a past, present, and future act. So in that first chapter, when Peter is writing to these people, he, he talks about how salvation is kept in heaven for you. And then later at the end of that, he says, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So you and I like to say that we are saved, and there is truth to that. We are stamped, when we decide that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and we respond to him, we can look at scripture that says we are sealed with the deposit of the Holy Spirit, and we can trust that the one who began a good work in us is going to see it to completion. But salvation isn't just for something in eternity. The deliverance that God has for us available today is supposed to start freeing us from the sin that so easily entangles and what we run up against in our lives today. It's not so that we can get to the end or right now and say, I'm perfect, I'm Scott clean. No, 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 no. It's for our good. And throughout it, throughout this whole process of being delivered, it's all God's goodness. It's always response to him. And so my professor in college, Dr. Madsen, when he was teaching us through this letter, I loved when he shared, you can say that you are saved, but the more full expression according to the scriptures is you are being saved. So then Peter would write, come to him. 
a living stone, though rejected by God's mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We don't have all the time in the world, but see the emphasis again, come to him. Rejected by mortals, chosen and precious. And then Peter starts using this language that is deeply Jewish. He's using language that would not have been ever applied to those people, to them, the Gentiles. And when we see sacrifices acceptable to God, we should note that that type of offering, they're offerings of thanksgiving. They're not sacrifices anymore that are supposed to atone or petition to God because of our sins. Jesus Christ has taken care of that. The forgiveness of sins is readily available to you and I, and so all we have left to offer, the response for you and me, is thanksgiving. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lord, that it's not me. Thank you, God, that it is your grace that delivers me, and not my goodness or my shortcomings. Thank you, God. So here's that key thing for that section. Our words about them change and our hearts about ourselves change. See, I just said it. That language that Peter uses was deeply Jewish. And the thought that that could be applied to those people at certain points in history would have been absolutely blasphemous, would have said that God isn't who God has claimed to be. But when we recognize that we come to him, when Peter, someone who told Jesus, I will never deny you, denies Jesus, and then Jesus invites him back to follow him, to love and to care, don't you think that left an impression on the guy? That he could do the absolute worst thing, reject Jesus, turn his back to Jesus, and then be invited at the end to follow after him. So that's why Peter can continue to write, for it stands in Scripture, see, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is an oxymoron again, because the idea of Zion, Jerusalem, this deeply Jewish Israel, picture, place, was at one point in time just supposed to be about those people there. But it says, reading through the scripture, whoever believes in him. So here's the key part for this text. Belief in Christ is cornerstone, tests our trust in God's ability. Does that make sense? If we're not sure that God is able then really we're saying we don't know if Jesus Christ is sufficient. We have that cornerstone imagery, right? That first stone that is laid, that corner that will orient the direction of the building and every other stone is going to be placed on that stone. And by the end of it, people might forget that that's the first one and it was placed there. People might say, oh, look at that stone. That's beautiful, that one. Look at this beautiful building. But it all starts with the placement of that cornerstone, Jesus, the Christ. To you then who believe, he is precious. We're continuing to move. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Pause here. Some of us might be uncomfortable with this language. Are these people destined to obey the imagery there, at least in this particular context? And quite frankly, if you look at Scripture, there's no way to systematize the wildness of who God is. Trust me. You can argue from one theological stance here and then be surprised in another, which is, thank God. I don't want to be able to make sense of God being able. So if you think that your form of theology is systematized and it's neat and tidy, well, sure, that kind is just like another kind. And we can talk about these things for days, but Jesus, the Christ, is the important one. And in this particular time, just for this one, though it might seem like these people were destined, like from the beginning of time they were set apart not to be able, the picture is about stumbling. They can choose, but choosing not to. And we note this, that in Peter's second letter, chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, Do not regard the Lord's slowness about His promises, slowness as some would regard them, right? But the Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance, a change of mind and heart. And then lastly, in this section, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You guys doing okay? It's a lot of Bible. That was really sad. Are you guys okay? Oh, I'm just making sure that you guys are okay. What do we do with all of this? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We want to know what to do. Well, it's wonderful that living in response to God's grace and His goodness, His forgiveness, His mercy, His imitation is something that you and I kind of get to learn how to do together. And so with that, I'd like to invite up Heather Fretz, our Connections pastor, as she shares about some of the things that we are going to get to do together in response to a long passage like this, but really in response to God. So, Heath, it's time. Thanks, Jed. Okay. So, thank you very much. Um, you were good, right? We're good. Okay. So, we all know, going way back, all the way to the very beginning, even to the disciples who were with Jesus, that um, we are able to do life together and to become more like Him in community. And so, um, we know that we need each other, right? We need each other in order to know him more fully and to follow him more faithfully. And when we're in a group like this together on a Sunday morning and we come together in order to worship and to um, learn together, it's awesome. But this type of large group doesn't lend itself to the type of connection and engagement with one another that requires change. And sorry, I need to take a deep breath. <laughs> Um, we want each of us at Sunridge Community Church to help find and follow Jesus together. And so we are inviting you to be a part of a life group this fall. Not all the groups that we have formed are going to be meeting in a home. And so we've decided to name them a life group. And the hope that we have is that meeting weekly in a group together, we will be sharing our lives in a meaningful way 
and that we would be walking alongside one another as we are discipled to Christ. And so before you get too worried about that, I want to talk to you about some of the things about joining a life group that um, we have right up here. And when you join a life group at Sunridge, you are not expected to have all of the right answers. Okay, this is legit, right? Because we get really in our heads about this and we think, oh my gosh, I need to memorize the whole New Testament because I need to know all the answers in case they ask me. And we don't need to know all of the answers because the one who has the right answers is Jesus and we are learning together alongside of one another. Also, when you join a life group at Sunridge, you are not sentenced to a lifetime commitment. We also get really intimidated by this and we think, oh my gosh, this is just an indefinite thing and you know, a really solid life group is going to meet for maybe 10 years, but that's not what we're asking. The commitment is for us to be a part of a group for this fall, understanding that all of our groups will meet until the end of next spring. Also, you are not guaranteed immediate best friends. And Believe me, I wish that I could tell you that one of my spiritual gifts is best friend finder, but that's not true. And I'm going to be straight with you that you may not find your next very best friend in this group. But what I can tell you is that it is going to be so important for us to learn. And if we really understand that the abundant life that Christ has for us includes one another, we can actively pursue that in a group. Okay, so... Let's talk about the next part, that when you join a life group at Sunridge, you are choosing to engage in a deeper way with others in your church family. Like I already said, we need each other. We do need each other, and we can choose to be a part of something that is the mission and vision of our church. Also, when you join a life group at Sunridge, you are helping Sunridge feel more like home to someone else, and people here need you. On a lot of levels, we already know this. Think of a time when someone here has made a difference in your life and impacted you. And if you are new to Sunridge, this is a way for you to get to know and connect with other people. And if you're old as Sunridge, this is a way for you to get to know and connect with other people here. We are at a moment in our church when it's been a really difficult year because of COVID, and we can view this as a gift and an opportunity for us to expand our communities. Also, lastly, when you join a life group, you are living out our mission and vision here at our church. So let's do a little quiz. What is the mission of Sunridge Community Church? Shout it out. Great, good job. We're helping people, including ourselves, find and follow Jesus. Okay, a little bit harder. What is the vision of Sunridge Community Church? Very good. I wasn't so sure, but you did a great job. Being in groups with one another is a way that we help ourselves live that out in our everyday lives. So all of this can be summed up in one statement, and that is right up here. We have people, our group, to be a people, Sunridge Community Church, for the sake of other people. And those people are people sitting right next to you in this room, right next to you in your groups, and for the people outside of these walls. And so, what we're asking for you to do, starting today, you can sign up for a life group, and it's gonna be beginning the week of September 12th. Our website on sunridgechurch.org has all of the groups listed. They'll be all across the valley, and we have some really awesome and amazing, excited facilitators who are ready to welcome you in. 
We're going to be discussing the Sunday sermons and talking about the practical ways that we can process how we incorporate this into our everyday lives. And there will be kid-friendly groups. You can check it out. I want you to talk to people. I want you to think about during our summer series, maybe you sat next to someone that you really connected with and you'd like to get to know them more. Maybe at our pre-summer retreat, you found someone that was super fun and you want to get to know them better. Talk to each other. I encourage you, I will be in the hallway to talk with you after this service if you have any questions. And I hope that you consider joining the part of our lives to do this together as a part of our church and what God has for us this fall. Thank you. Thank you, Heb. That last bit there, that's our sermon. That's what we get to live out together. And you're probably wondering, why the heck do we just have Heather just do that then? I'd just <laughs> like to invite up our worship team as we begin to conclude our service. And I want to close out the very last bit of this passage. And Peter writes, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. That people language is really, really impactful. Especially when you were not a people at one point in time. I love in the infancy narratives of Jesus when it says he will save his people from their sins. And it's wild at every beginning of these gospels, he will save his people from their sins. And by the conclusion, you're saying his people. It's the world, it's us, that it's offered to us. I have one more passage of scripture I'd like to read. It comes out of Matthew. And I think it's pretty fascinating. The Hosea text is noted there. And if you haven't heard the story of Hosea and his wife going to this Old Testament prophet, I encourage you to read. It's a wild, wild story about God's covenant faithfulness to us, despite us. And there's another place in scripture where Hosea is alluded to by Jesus. And, and it's subtle and we don't, we don't see it too often. I'm going to read this, and, and then our team can start to play after explain it. It's in Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... And this is this passage from Hosea, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Would you stand here this morning? Would you take just a moment to, to look at, at this room here? It's, it's pretty wild that we get to be in this space together. I'm looking right now in the back and I'm seeing we, we are just front to back all over in this room. It's wild that we get to be here. You know, Megan Butcher, it's your last Sunday with us before you and your husband deploy out to Virginia. It's what a gift you've been to our church. And Marie, I don't know where you are. Oh, three, where are you? All the way in the back. There's Marie 03. Ken, thanks for letting me know and calling today to say that 
It's going to be Marie's last Sunday with us, and she's moving to Arizona. We're going to miss you. In this scene, oftentimes the way we've been taught it is, you know, Jesus shows up, and there are these sinners there, and then, then we're told, let's go and love those people. Let's be like that. Let's be like Jesus and love those people. You know what's wild is, if our culture is us versus them, what about a paradigm shift for us? What if something happens in us that draws out praise and response and worship, and we actually... Instead of just assuming that, of course, Jesus would be with us, what if you and I adopted a heart like the people there that were shocked and surprised that Jesus is with us? What would it look like for people to walk into this space, people that tout themselves as religious or Christian or what have you, and for them to say, Jesus is with those people? And for us to say, yeah, I'm shocked and surprised that he is here with us. You know what happens when that is the change in my heart and in your heart? When we are shocked that Jesus is with us, then suddenly the key is that Christ is actually for us and not them. But them is kind of just dispelled and taken away. The us part says we would be shocked that Jesus, the Christ, is here with us. Us, which is to say that the reality that you and I in this room, we are so different. Our choices, our decisions, there's so much that's different about us. Our minds would explode if we knew all the ways that we are different or saw things differently or lived differently or what have you. But to know that he is cornerstone, that we're built on him is to make it possible. So can we trust God's ability and can we in response thank him and rejoice that he is here with us? And would we be a people that of course would look at this world and say, oh yeah, we're right with you. You can come inside this building, but it's not really that special outside of the fact that Jesus Christ is the one that makes all of it possible. Let's worship together. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.